Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. So, Ewan, if you were knighted, what would you do with it? Well, that is uh, a good question. Um, it's not hasn't been floated recently, actually, I have to say. Uh, certainly not for services of broadcasting. Uh, what would I do with it? I'm looking forward to my official portrait, but apparently every single lord gets an official portrait, which I do rather fancy. Uh, well, it's only a photo, I think, looking, oh, at, the house of, looking oh. at the House of Lords website. I think it looks like a high-res photograph. I quite fancy the idea of sort of being tapped on the shoulder by a sword, very carefully, of course. So women don't get knighted. They, they are bestowed a damehood, which is quite jolly. And, of oh. course, it does mean, I think, that you can... Create your own coat of arms. That's what, rather what, appealing. What, what would be on yours? What would be on mine? Well, my producer rather cheekily said a pair of sparkly shoes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Maybe a netball. How about uh, oh? How about a vintage radio microphone in one corner? Some and a phrase in Latin, obviously. And some shortbread. <laughs> Now, that really is my secret that you've revealed <laughs> oh, to no, the world. Oh, no, sorry if, I, if I've blown the, uh, this I've blown is, the secret. This is my favourite snack from the Bloomberg Pantry. Anyone who's <laughs> ever been into our very swanky London offices knows that we have uh, some excellent snacks. Yes, I'm very partial to a shortbread biscuit. I don't, could you represent that in a coat of arms? Well, why not? I think, yes, I think it's rather nice. Uh, and on a more serious note, though, somebody way younger than us... Uh, is actually on Boris Johnson's list uh, to become, um, yeah, to sit in the House of Lords. Of course, more seriously, to make, and or at least to help to make the laws of the land, the kind of political donors and the advisors to Boris Johnson. This is his list of, uh, his, his honours list. Yeah, I don't know what I think about kind of people under 30 being in the House of Lords. I sort of feel that it should be a place you go to sort of later in your career when you've got some experience. But mm. you could argue that... We need some younger people in the upper chamber. I mean, there are younger people in, yeah. in the Commons, aren't there? Yes, Not definitely. Many, but, but I quite like this. Trans- I think it's Transparency International. Another political party donor set to be given a seat for life in Parliament if this latest list gets past the House of Lords Appointments Commission, they say in their tweet, they might as well pack up and go home. So perhaps is there a credibility issue mm. with, again, kind of packing the upper house with friends, donors, advisors? I certainly think there is rather a large number of them. 773, mm. which is makes it pretty enormous. And by you can pick up standards. some cash by turning up every yeah. day and actually helping with the legislative process. 330 quid. Yes. Not adds bad, up. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if you've done, you've done a long day's work and you've gone home and dealt with some... Uh, you know, research for tomorrow and some parliamentary mm. correspondence, then £300 is 
it's probably a reasonable wage or yeah, it's still quite and, a handsome wage. And perhaps they're not landowners or wealthy individuals anymore. I mean, in fact, the people on the list include the former uh, Daily Mail editor who's back on the list despite, you know, ethics chiefs having blocked his nomination ah, in other... Yeah, Dacre, Paul Dacre. Also, David Ross is the multimillionaire Carphone Warehouse founder who is forced to quit. Um, and actually, he's he's the man who paid for Boris Johnson to take that... A trip to the Caribbean island of Mustique oh, yeah. and that triggered the standards question. So he's also back on the list. And of course, some of them may just be quite young, unemployed, former advisors to Boris Johnson. So they're probably quite short of cash. Yeah, but maybe they've got big brains and they could add to, to the discussion. Anyway, Boris Johnson <laughs> making waves with his um, picks for the House of Lords. OK, well, we actually have got, you know, We've got a Lord who spoke to us this morning and he doesn't even often use his actual title. This is Lord Deben, who's uh, the chair of the UK's Independent Committee on Climate Change. And he's John Gummer, of course, much more commonly known as John Gummer because he was an MP for many years. He was also the chair of the Conservative Party Committee. He was speaking to us today on Bloomberg Radio. Well, with a year since the UK hosted the last UN climate conference in Glasgow, we are now only investing a fifth of what's needed to meet our net zero targets. So Tom McKenzie and I asked John Gummer if Britain is doing enough to make a difference when it comes to climate change. Well, nothing is enough of a difference because it's such a huge operation that we have to have. But if you add this to what, for example, we are supporting uh, in South Africa's proposals, which you covered a bit earlier on your programme. Um, we are beginning to get a, a, a major move uh, which takes on the work that we did in Glasgow. But there's a huge amount to do. And the thing that we have to concentrate on is getting Britain right. And the trouble is the government has the best targets in the world. It set the best pace in the world, but it hasn't done the work to do the delivery. And it's the delivery that I am pressing the new prime minister, who is a man who does deliver, and I want him to deliver on climate change. And how much confidence do you have then, Lord Devon, that indeed the, the new prime minister and his team will will deliver, as you say? And to what extent is business leading the way? And how much catch up is there between the needs of government to implement versus what's happening on the business level? Well, first of all, on the business level, it is very much better than it was. The big change has been, as you well know, is the huge change in the financial industry, which has now understood that uh, climate change is a real threat to enterprise throughout the world and uh, is getting its house in order. ESG has become really important, not just as a, a convenient piece of advertisement, but is absolutely central. So business is moving, not fast enough. We've still got to get some of the countries, like, like uh, ExxonMobil, for example, which is merely talking, isn't actually doing anything that really needs to be done. Um, there are a whole series of companies which we really do have to concentrate upon. But the government has really only got something just under 40% of the programme in place that it needs to meet its targets for 2030, 2035 and 2050. And by law, it has got to do that. And so I don't think that um, uh, Mr Sunak is going to avoid the legal responsibility which he has to produce that, not just because the Climate Change Committee has asked for it, but that the courts have said he's got to produce it by March. Yes. Having said that, 
what sort of confidence can one have? The former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says that um, you know keeping climate change to the one and a half degrees Celsius is still achievable. Is this kind of boosterish exaggeration damaging to Britain's climate fight? Well, I don't think he's... I mean, <coughs> no one could accuse me of being a great fan of the former Prime Minister, but the fact of the matter is that he has been right on one thing alone, I think, and that is on climate change. Um, and I don't think there's any doubt that if we actually put our shoulders to the wheel properly, we can keep the rise under one down to 1.5. And we have to do that. I mean, if you think the withering summer that we have just gone through, and that was when the temperatures only risen by about one degree. So at the moment, we're on a direct course for about two and a half to three degrees so we've really got to get this right and i think the government has recognized that i, I just I'd, I'd be interested to get your views love deb on 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 our uh you are on international influence even if that is uh, arguably waning at this point the, the need to ensure that we have a comprehensive plan around this issue when we're trying to convince our uh, interlocutors the likes of china and india where really the dial is being moved in terms of the impact on the climate uh, and how much of a shortcoming there is there that, that in order to convince those players um we need to have a clear strategy laid out ourselves Oh, well, exactly. And, and I keep on saying that we need to do three things. One is we have to do it ourselves and have a strategy which is quite uh, serious and which people can see is going to work. Secondly, we have to stop worrying people about whether we're going to keep our word or not. And that is why the government really does have to look again at this uh, Northern Irish Protocol Bill, which is going through the House of Lords, where we are proposing to break our word on our international obligations. This is unacceptable, because if you do it on one thing, how do people believe you on another thing? So the, 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 that has got to be changed. And the third thing that's got to be changed is our attitude to towards the poorer nations. Because when you look at the floods in Nigeria or the floods in uh, Pakistan, these are countries which have not benefited from the pollution that we have created. Our wealth has depended on the Industrial Revolution. They have none of that wealth, and yet they are suffering from what we have done. And we've really got to change the way in which we talk, and which is why I'm very pleased with uh, Rishi Sunak promise to increase the amount of money we're going to give for adaptation. I think we're going to have to move much faster along those lines. Mm. And if I may say so, people on the right have got to recognise that if they're worried about immigration, then the one thing that they really ought to be fighting more than anything else is climate change. Because if it goes on like this, there will be huge populations on the move. And that will not be something that any of us are going to be able to stop. So that was John Gummer, Lord Deben, who is the chair of the Committee on Climate Change here in the UK. Look, I think it's absolutely fascinating those two points that he made, don't you, Ewan, about the idea that if you break your promises when it comes to Northern Ireland, you were specific about the Northern Ireland Protocol, no one's going to believe you on climate change. And also that if you're a Conservative Party voter and you're worried about migration, then you have to think about climate change. And that is absolutely not where the Conservative grassroots base are, is it? Mm, yeah, fascinating point, really. John Gummer 
such a big figure, of course, in the 80s and 90s oh. with uh, BSE. We were looking up those photos, weren't we, Olive? Him, uh... Absolutely. Look, I remember, and you, you and I both remember the BSE crisis, the mad cow moment in Britain, which was a terrible, a terrible slaughter of animals that took place. Mm. But John Gummer was the minister at the heart of that. Yeah, he very much was. And it's incredible. He's he's still around, actually, and he's getting involved with climate change. He was always quite passionate about the environment. Yes, and always he was very environment much from, minister. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. And very, very much from one wing of the party. But interesting that he's sort of trying to tie it into... Uh, more, what would you say, uh, the other side of the party concerned about immigration and saying, you know, look, if you're worried about immigration, then it's going to be a big push factor for people living in poorer countries if if there are terrible floods and, you know, other weather events. Yes, he also did mention, um, you know, the very, the incredibly hot summer that we had here in the UK. And he, you know, he had all the figures to hand, of course, about actually what's happening um, in the UK was only about one degree of warming and that is the impact that it had just mm. this summer and we've had obviously recently incredibly hot years and then a very wet October. So yeah, I think it's very interesting that he was also speaking to MPs in June because he he's the one really holding um, members of Parliament's feet to the fire when it comes to not yeah. doing enough. Very little progress has actually been made. That was the conclusion of the CCC since Glasgow last year to now because there's been all of this political uncertainty yeah one of the Tory party's great survivors <laughs> <laughs> we were looking at, I have to tell listeners we watched we went back and re-watched the video of John Gummer giving his daughter the, the burger you know trying to prop up the beef industry in Britain and mm. saying look it is safe when that whole BSE crisis happened that's a real political history isn't it yes <laughs> <laughs> Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, from a peer of the realm to someone much, much more important, not our next guest, Bloomberg's Sarah Rappaport, although she is also very important, <laughs> but the subject of the latest instalment of Netflix drama, The Crown, which is released tomorrow. So the fifth season has been called Complete and Utter Rubbish by the former Labour Prime Minister Tony Blair. And then the former Conservative PM John Major came out with this line, a barrel load of nonsense and malicious fiction. <laughs> Let's get more with Bloomberg Sarah Rappaport. Look, John Major was known as the grey man. This sort of came out of the clear blue sky, didn't it? That, that kind of language about a TV show. Why is Major so annoyed? I think nerves are quite frayed because it's the first season to come out since the Queen's death left mm. uh, in September, obviously. And it's a bit of a uh, 
controversial season as well because it features the dissolution of the marriage between Charles and Diana, which we all know was quite contentious. They're digging up some uh, 30-year-old bones in this show. But John Major himself comes off as an elder statesman, comes off very well. He can relax. And what's more important, perhaps, is that Buckingham Palace can relax because now King Charles, he's not a villain in the show. Obviously, you know, his divorce was... A problem and Diana is hurting and but he's hurting too in the show he comes off very sympathetic so I think you can put down your pitchforks if you're a royalist like they're, they're not out to get them because they're getting got, ahead of the news cycle but they're got, not out to get them you've got all of this because you got to see the preview she says very jealously having watched I did. the other they're, season it's all out tomorrow so you can you know get your okay. binge watching in but it's a very good show. I mean, Netflix spends tons of money. It looks expensive. The sets are beautiful. The acting is lovely, although I'm not entirely convinced about Imelda Staunton as a queen. I gotta say, I, uh, I was a little taken aback. I thought Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman were perhaps better majesties, but... But aside you can from that, wash yourself and <laughs> decide tomorrow. Aside from that, you, uh, you, you enjoyed it, though. You think, you think it's good. It's worthy of the, worthy of the name. Of the series rather than the Everyone's family, going to be talking about it tomorrow, I'll tell you that, from, you know, in, in Parliament to, to in the palaces. Yeah. But the main thing is, not Charles, not Diana, not the Queen, no one is a villain. I don't know I if know, they were I gentle think... on purpose because of the Queen stuff. Maybe they were re-editing, I don't know, but no one comes off too badly. Yeah, look, look, I mean, the Crown and the palaces and the story, it sells, of course. And look, I was sort of photo-shocked by what John Major was saying, Um but what? But it is hugely important, isn't it? Because um, this is the kind of telling of such recent history and the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Queen in the UK is so important and all of those private conversations that happen between a PM and, you know, now the King, of course, um, are sort of so, so key. I mean, what have the reviews been like? I think that's also kind of important, isn't it? I do think last season, having Thatcher as a foil to the Queen mm. was what made that work really well. And, and Major and, and early Blair don't work in quite the same way. Or the show didn't decide to focus on that. They really focus on Diana. And I mean, she was a superstar and the story is hugely compelling. But not having that political foil to the Queen and her audiences is what makes it suffer a bit in comparison uh-huh. to season four. And this is supposed to be the final season, isn't it? The this penultimate. The and Oh, it is the penultimate yeah, one. Okay. But I have to wonder if they're going to keep on going. <laughs> because yeah, because it's starting to get quite, you know, quite recent, isn't it? So, the, the, I mean, the closer you get to, to, to current events, the more... They did cast a William and Kate. William's in this season as a young boy, but he's in a college student next season. And there is a, a Kate Middleton cast. You have to wonder if they just want to push it and do Megxit as well. Because that is oh, just yeah. prime entertainment, oh. right? It's yeah. another big, uh, and that's big juicy difficult, scandal for the crowd. The fix- fictionalization uh, of of these stories that people in the UK uh, certainly are very very familiar with. Yeah, I I know also that they've added this tag fictional dramatization. Mm. A disclaimer, Sarah Rappaport, your preview on the Crown has had so many hits on the terminal, so <laughs> yes, we definitely had you. to get you on. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's it's hugely important. I think politically, you know, how our own history is told back to us, I think is really fascinating. Bloomberg Sarah Rappaport, thanks so much. While staying with the UK, we entered a familiar holding pattern as the press speculate on what measures the Chancellor might take ahead of the budget next week. Unlike Gwazi Kwarteng's mini-budget, though, people are wondering if Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will be raising taxes, including taxes, on banks. Now, we spoke to Miles Chayich, the CEO of the City UK, an industry body for London Finance. He spoke to us earlier about what bankers are watching out from the budget. 
Uh, so from our perspective and from the perspective of the companies we represent and reflecting the conversations that we've had with international counterparts and other uh, potential investors in the UK, what people are looking for is stability. They're looking for predictability. Uh, I think the UK has been seen from a political perspective as just a little bit too exciting, certainly since 2016 uh, and the Brexit vote uh, and the sort of consequences that have flowed from that and arguably from 2014 and the Scottish independence referendum. So I think there would be, there will be a, a strong sense of welcome for uh, being able to know the direction of travel on regulation, uh, what that looks like now that the UK is out of the European Union, what's the vision uh, for financial and related professional services, something Rishi Sunak set out quite compellingly in his Mansion House speech last year. How will that be built on? And what are we going to see uh, as we move forward uh, also in terms of uh, potential new deals with other markets? Uh, uh, obviously, there's been talk of FTAs with India, with the US. We've got CPTPP. What does all that mean for financial and professional services and how do regulation, tax, you know, the broader picture all fit together? During the Liz Truss era, business leaders started to voice um, basically what for them seems to be an uncomfortable truth, which is that Brexit has harmed business. Even The Telegraph put out an editorial talking about how Project Fear was true, was a reality. Six years on from Brexit, what does the financial sector in London have to show for leaving the EU? So I think a couple couple of things there. So uh, one, absolutely agree. There's been a lot of policy turmoil. Uh, equally, as I would say, the financial services. What's been reassuring from the point of view of financial services is the financial services and markets bill appears to be making its way uh, forward without any major changes. Uh, and as I say, that's something that we in industry would like to see continued. From the point of view of um, the financial and professional services ecosystem here in the UK, um, and I can't speak on behalf of other parts of the economy where clearly there is and has been uh, an ongoing Brexit uh, impact. Um, we worked extremely closely with regulators in the UK uh, and in the EU pretty early on uh, to make sure that the uh, impact of Brexit was uh, as limited as possible and there was a minimum amount of disruption. Uh, the EY Brexit tracker, probably the best um, uh, analysis of the shifting jobs, shows that uh, although there were real concerns early on that there were going to be a fast shift of jobs, uh, that hasn't been the case about seven and a half thousand somewhere between seven and a half thousand and eight thousand jobs uh, in the in financial services in the UK have left uh, as a result of Brexit from what we can tell that's out of a total of 1.1 million and uh, in terms of the shift that we're seeing from exports and obviously uh, the UK is one of the world's two leading international financial centres. Um, the uh, US has now become our largest single market uh, for financial services exports. It's overhauled the EU. I think that's not a surprise. But also, if you look at the most recent trade stats, and these come from Suffolk University's Trade Observatory, uh, Observatory and are based on ONS stats, um, there's been a surge in exports to uh, markets outside the EU, so an increase of more than 20%, an overall increase of more than 11%. Mm -hmm. uh, and the US, Switzerland, Hong Kong are, are mm -hmm. the biggest mm -hmm. beneficiaries of that, you know, and those yeah. are more than 20% for the US, more well, than 60% for Hong Kong. Right. I mean, most of what you just explained and outlined for us very comprehensively and very clearly is mitigation effects of the worst damaging effects of Brexit. And apparently there's been a pretty good job in mitigating some of those worst effects. Trade, we know overall, is still significantly down if you add in our lost trade to Europe. So it seems you, uh, that there are, just to be clear, no clear uh, Brexit benefits, just to be clear. For I the think city what of London. will happen 
So the first thing I'd say is that the, and this is why we've always been slightly suspicious of this sort of demand to tear up European uh, regulation that occasionally comes up from time to time in certain quarters. What that ignores is that the rules that we inherited from the EU are very largely British rules. The UK industry, UK regulators, UK government did extremely well at designing uh, and building the architecture of European regulation. Uh, and you know that was in the nature of the way that the EU operates. Typically, large member states uh, with a particular interest or expertise in a part of the economy tend to take the informal lead on that. So mm -hmm. on agriculture, French on advanced manufacturing tend to be the Germans. On financial services, it was the UK. So with, with very few exceptions, the rules that we've onboarded are very much made in Britain. Uh, now, the challenge will be how we move forward. So the divergence won't particularly be on the back book of EU regulation. The divergence will be uh, in, in terms of how we move forward on things such as fintech or green and sustainable finance or other areas that are going to be the way in which financial services as an ecosystem develops in the years ahead. And that's going to be ultimately that is going to be something of a balancing act between maintaining the best possible access for the UK to the EU and vice versa. We shouldn't forget that. So that was the CEO of the City UK, Miles Selleck, there speaking to me and to Tom McKenzie just earlier this morning. Miles has been on, I think, at least three times with Bloomberg Radio this year, effectively laying out what the priorities are for the City of London from the Conservative government um, and basically saying the same thing again, this time with an added plea for some greater stability. Uh, and this, of course, ahead of the Chancellor's autumn statement. Yeah, I wonder if the government's listening. Because financial services is incredibly important to the UK economy, as we all know. But the government has so many other things uh, in the inbox that I, I, I'm not sure this is sort of top of the list. And I, I think during Brexit, the city was sort of left to fend for itself, wasn't it? But interesting yeah. that uh, Miles says that loads of jobs haven't disappeared uh, as a result of Brexit, although I guess we don't know what the, what the, counter, what the counterfactual yeah, is. I mean, look, I think it's very, uh, you know, it's very difficult. Um, but look, I think that that City of London wish list is one thing. There's loads of speculation and there will be probably every day between now and the 17th of November about what's actually going to be in the autumn statement. I mean, inheritance tax and all the other tax rises that may need to, to come. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.